You've probably heard the expression, history is written by the victors. Well, what if some history is actually written by conmen or by government conspirators hell-bent on hiding the truth? How's that accounted for in our textbooks? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who sometimes fantasizes about escaping and living out the rest of my life under an assumed identity, but honestly... The thought of having to change all my passwords again is too exhausting. This week, more than 150 years ago, John Wilkes Booth assassinated President Abraham Lincoln and tried to escape. Twelve days later, he was captured and killed by Union soldiers, and his body was laid to rest while the country did its best to grieve and move on. Or is that just what they want us to think? I'm sure you know the story of President Lincoln's assassination. They teach it in grade school. But just in case you grew up in a cult and they forgot to educate you, the story, in a serious nutshell, is that President Abraham Lincoln was shot in the back of the head at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. during a performance of Our American Cousin on April 14, 1865, by John Wilkes Booth. Lincoln succumbed to the gunshot early the next morning, becoming the first American president to be assassinated. Let's flesh it out, though, shall we, students? Oh, God, I'm the teacher in this scenario? Lord help us all. Booth was a Confederate sympathizer and was real pissed at Lincoln for expanding government and ending slavery. But he wasn't just a racist. No, John Wilkes Booth, by the age of 26, was a pretty famous actor who had performed many times at the very theater where he would go on to kill the president. Historian Terry Alford claims that once after a performance, fans nearly tore Booth's clothes off. Booth inherited his talent and interest in acting from his parents. Pretty much everyone in his family were actors. He also inherited his bombast and political fanaticism from his father, Junius Brutus Booth. That's gotta be a stage name, right? Who allegedly had written to Andrew Jackson when he was president, threatening to kill him. Charming people, the Booths. So, back at Ford's Theater on April 14, 1865, Booth just walked right in during the show. He had memorized the play and knew when the big laugh lines would come, which he would use to cover the sound of his gun firing. You know that old joke? Other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how did you like the play? I know, hilarious. Well, considering that the big laugh line Booth used as cover was, brace yourselves, don't know the manners of good society, eh? Well, I guess I know enough to turn you inside out, old gal, you sockdologizing old man trap. Ah, ha, 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 ha. Considering that humdinger of a line, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that Mary Todd Lincoln was like, as if the play wasn't bad enough, I had to watch my husband get murdered during it. After firing the fatal shot, John Wilkes Booth leapt from the balcony and landed 11 feet below on the stage of the theater, which was now in complete chaos, most likely breaking his leg in the process. He yelled, Sic Semper Tyrannus, or Thus Always to Tyrants, and fled the theater, jumped on his waiting horse, and galloped south to Virginia alongside co-conspirator David Harold. 
En route to Virginia, Booth, now in acute pain from his probably broken leg, made a quick stop to see Dr. Samuel Mudd to have his leg set. Dr. Mudd had no way of knowing his patient was wanted for the murder of the President of the United States. It's not like he'd gotten an iPhone alert or anything. Regardless, later, once everyone discovered Dr. Mudd had abetted the man who assassinated Lincoln, albeit without knowing that's what he was doing, his name and his practice were ruined. Apparently, the Hippocratic Oath doesn't apply to president murders. Booth, now with a $100,000 bounty on his head, which is nearly $2 million in today money, and Harold slogged through the forests and swamps to get to Virginia, where 10 days after shooting the president, they happened upon a farm owned by a man named Richard Garrett, who was in the habit of helping people in need. They told Garrett they were Confederate soldiers coming back from war, and Garrett's family took the two fugitives in. The question of whether Garrett knew these men were responsible for killing the president is up for debate. He claimed to not even know the president had been killed when the men showed up at his door. And, like, sure, it's not like he could have checked his Twitter feed or whatever, but the day after Lincoln was killed, people clear across the country in California knew it happened and knew that John Wilkes Booth was wanted for it. So it's a little hard to believe this guy, the next state over, was completely oblivious 10 full days after it happened. Anyway, on April 24th, Union soldiers found the men holed up in the barn on Garrett's farm. Harold gave himself up right away, but Booth wouldn't come out and was apparently annoyed that the bounty on his head wasn't higher. This fucking guy. So the Union soldiers set the barn on fire, hoping to smoke Booth out. But before they could even see if that plan would work, ol' itchy trigger finger Sergeant Boston Corbett shot Booth in the neck. The men dragged Booth, now paralyzed, out of the burning barn, and as he lay dying, he said, "'Tell my mother I die for my country.' And then he said, "'Useless. Useless.'" Which I assume was what he realized his previous statement had been. Like the Union soldiers would go tell the president's assassin's mom that her son was a patriot. I don't think so, sweetie. Whatever he meant, Booth's body was taken for his autopsy and then given to his family, who buried him in Baltimore, Maryland. The end. Case closed. Lincoln's assassin had been caught and killed, and the country could now grieve and move on. But was the case really closed? Is it possible that in the fervor and haste of moving on from this national tragedy, the U.S. government got the wrong guy? According to a small but vocal contingent of historians, John Wilkes Booth may have gone on to lead a long and full life, hiding in plain sight. In 1907, an attorney named Finnis L. Bates published a book called The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth, in which he laid out his theory that John Wilkes Booth didn't die at Garrett's barn 10 days after assassinating Lincoln, but actually escaped capture altogether and died by his own hand nearly 40 years later. Bates alleged that in 1872, in Granbury, Texas, where he was a practicing attorney, he called on one John St. Helen to testify as a witness for a client he was defending. Rather than testifying, St. Helen hired Bates as his attorney and then immediately used client attorney privilege to admit to Bates that he couldn't testify in a federal court because John St. Helen wasn't his real name, and testifying would compel him to reveal his true identity. Whether or not Bates was like, 
then who the fuck are you? I don't know. But it wasn't until six years later in 1878 when St. Helen, believing he was about to die from some kind of respiratory illness, confessed to Bates. I am dying. My name is John Wilkes Booth. And I am the assassin of President Lincoln. Get the picture of myself from under the pillow. I leave it with you for my future identification. Notify my brother, Edwin Booth, of New York City. St. Helen didn't end up dying, though. Oops, am I right? And, according to Bates, once he had recovered, John St. Helen, come John Wilkes Booth, regaled him with a tale of treason and intrigue. Bates said that St. Helen confessed that the original plan had been to kidnap Lincoln and hold him for ransom in exchange for captured Confederate soldiers. But the war ended before that plan could be enacted, so Andrew Johnson, yes, that Andrew Johnson, the literal vice president of the United States under Abraham Lincoln, convinced Booth to kill the president. How Booth and Johnson knew each other, I don't know. Maybe that was a perk of being a famous actor back then? Johnson was pro-Confederate, so maybe they met up at some backroom club for asshole racists. Also, why Johnson would pick a famous and recognizable actor to kill Lincoln is beyond me. But, according to Bates, St. Helen, a.k.a. John Wilkes Booth, told him, Johnson was like, I promise I'll set up a nice, clean escape for you. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. The man who died at Garrett's farm? Just some poor schmuck who'd been suckered into thinking he was doing the right thing. A patsy. I'll get to him in a minute. Shortly after making this stunning confession, John St. Helen was like, I'm out, and disappeared off to Colorado to find his fortune in mining, and Bates lost track of him. In retrospect, Bates was like, oh yeah, he did like Shakespeare a lot. In his book, Bates claimed that St. Helen loved reciting Shakespeare, particularly Richard III, which was a known favorite of John Wilkes Booth. Ugh, could you imagine? You're at a bar just trying to enjoy your beer and some blowhard insists on reciting Shakespeare? Shut up. Regardless, Bates was like, of course this dude was Booth. But then, in 1903, Bates heard about an obituary for a man named David E. George, who died in Enid, Oklahoma. The obituary read, David E. George, a wealthy resident of the territory who committed suicide here, announced himself on his deathbed to be John Wilkes Booth, the assassin of President Lincoln. He stated that he had successfully eluded the officers after shooting Lincoln, and since had remained incognito. His statement caused a sensation, and an investigation was made. Surgeons stated the man to be of the age Booth would be at this time, and announced that his leg was broken in the same place and in the same manner as that of Booth. Telegrams arriving yesterday and today ask that the body be held for identification. Bates was so intrigued by the obit that he hopped on a train to Enid, announced himself to the coroner as an old friend of the deceased, and confidently declared that David E. George was John St. Helen, or rather, John Wilkes Booth. It was a scar above the right eyebrow and a deformed thumb that gave the true identity away, Bates said. 
So Bates did the most logical thing one could possibly imagine. He had the body mummified and shipped back to his home in Memphis, Tennessee. (laughs) Obviously. For the record, I had no idea you could just waltz into a morgue and be like, I'll take that, thank you. Bates published The Escape and Suicide of John Wilkes Booth in 1907, laying out the extraordinary tale of Booth's life post-assassination, but no one really took it seriously. Over the years, he attempted to sell the mummified corpse to various people, including our favorite anti-Semite Henry Ford, who was probably too preoccupied with writing tomes that would inspire Adolf Hitler to bother with the mummified corpse of Lincoln's alleged assassin. After Bates died, his widow succeeded in selling the corpse to a prohibitionist doctor, which apparently was just a doctor who would prescribe alcohol when it was illegal to buy it over the counter, who I guess then sold it to a traveling circus. The mummified corpse of David E. George slash John St. Helens slash John Wilkes Booth disappeared in the 1970s. No one knows where it is today. Which begs the question... How many mummies are floating around this country that one could just get lost? Like, how do you lose an entire mummy? Anyway. Most people dismissed Bates as a nutjob sucker who'd bought a lie from John St. Helen. Historian James Hall told our buddy Robert Stack on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries from 1991, he believes St. Helen just flat-out lied to Bates, and Bates ran with it and then embellished it to write his book. Whether Hall believed St. Helen lied about being John Wilkes Booth in order to cover up for other crimes he was actually committing, though it's hard to imagine what crimes you would need to cover up, that lying about assassinating the president would seem like a good option? Or that he was just a liar who liked to lie? I don't know. Others believed Bates was just an opportunist, trying to get the reward money the government had offered back before John Wilkes Booth was captured and killed at Garrett's barn. Bates had indeed petitioned the government for the reward money even before reading David E. George's obituary and having his former friend mummified. I don't know on what grounds he thought he was entitled to that money. He didn't know where St. Helens slash Booth even was at the time. I guess he thought the government would just hand him $100,000 for saying he once knew a guy who confessed to being John Wilkes Booth. Man, what I would give to live with even a fraction of that kind of blind entitlement. But even though the popular opinion was that Bates' story was complete cockamamie, there were a few historians who believed that Bates was probably right, or that, at the very least, the man buried in John Wilkes Booth's grave in Baltimore, Maryland, is not John Wilkes Booth. And not for nothing, they have the evidence to back it up. Historian Nate Orlowek first got wind of the John Wilkes Booth didn't die in 1865 conspiracy when he was a teenager and has spent five decades doggedly researching and defending this version of history. Orlowek is the go-to guy for every History Channel show about the mystery surrounding John Wilkes Booth. Orlowek and his conspiracy theory co-conspirator, historian Dr. Arthur Chitty, believe there is overwhelming evidence that Booth was not killed at Garrett's farm that day in April of 1865. The men were featured on the 1991 Unsolved Mysteries about John Wilkes Booth's possible escape, where they laid out their case. 
They believe that the man killed at Garrett's farm was James A. Boyd, a Confederate soldier and probable Union spy. Dr. Chitty claimed that David E. Harold came out of the barn and the first thing he said was, the man in there is not Booth. James A. Boyd apparently disappeared from any records sometime around Lincoln's death, and some people argue that he looked pretty much exactly like Booth. According to writer and historian Brad Meltzer, Boyd had been a prisoner of the Union Army in the weeks before Lincoln was assassinated and was transferred to Washington, D.C. by Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, most likely because he was actually a spy for the Union Army. If Boyd was a Union spy, it makes sense that the Secretary of War might have scrubbed his record. Some believe that Secretary of War Stanton took advantage of Boyd's timely transfer to D.C. and his resemblance to Booth to put Boyd at Garrett's barn himself once he'd found out Booth had actually escaped. That way, Union soldiers would kill Boyd. Stanton could declare that they actually killed Booth and put the whole thing to rest as quickly as possible. For me, the hole in this theory is that, as far as I understand, the Union soldiers weren't necessarily supposed to kill Booth. They were just supposed to capture him. So what Stanton planned on doing if they had captured Boyd instead of killing him, who knows? Surely if he had just been captured, people would have figured out real fast that he wasn't Booth. Unless old itchy trigger finger Boston Corbett didn't accidentally pull the trigger, but shot Boyd on direct orders from Stanton. Does your head hurt too? Historian James Hall doesn't believe for one second that David Harold ever claimed the man shot in Garrett's barn was not Booth. According to Hall, Harold made a 40-page statement 36 hours after his arrest in which he referred to Booth by name at least 10 times when going over the events in and around the barn. Of course, you and I both know by now that plenty of witnesses, and especially suspects, have been known to make false statements under pressure from law enforcement. And that's exactly what Dr. Chitty believes happened with Harold. He said, By the time David E. Harold changed his testimony, he was under such enormous pressure. He was in fear of his life. He had been incarcerated with a canvas bag over his head and just a little hole to be fed through. He was under terrible emotional strain and was trying to save his neck. And so therefore, when he felt that he would survive by changing his story, he changed his story. But it wasn't just Harold who allegedly questioned whether it was indeed Booth who was shot at Garrett's farm. According to Orlowek, at least three eyewitnesses who were at Garrett's farm in the aftermath of the showdown claimed that the body of the man they saw laid out near the barn had red or sandy-colored hair. In a sworn affidavit given half a century later, Quartermaster Wilson D. Kenzie recalled an exchange he and Private Joseph Ziskin, who were both friends with Booth, had. As I rode up, Joe Ziskin called, Here, come here, Sergeant. This ain't John Wilkes Booth at all. This man has sandy hair, and Booth had very dark hair. I knew it once, wasn't he? His body was exposed to the lower part of it, and he had no injured leg that I could see. One possible explanation about the different hair color is that when Booth stopped at Dr. Mudd's to have his leg set, he also dyed his hair. I'm no expert in the history of hair dye, but going from jet black to red or sandy isn't tremendously easy. 
Granted, Booth was an actor, so maybe he had some experience with dyeing his hair, but still, it's not like he could just pop into a CVS for a box of L'Oreal. As for not seeing evidence of an injured leg, it's entirely possible that Booth's leg was bandaged underneath his pant leg. Doubtful, but who knows? I mean, I'm sure someone knows, but there's a lot more to cover and not a lot of time. Let's keep going. According to Orloek and Chitty, prominent D.C. surgeon Dr. John Frederick May was brought to Garrett's farm to identify the body, having recently performed surgery on Booth, removing a tumor from the back of his neck. They claim witnesses heard Dr. May say, quote, This body doesn't look anything like Booth. I don't recall Booth being freckled. I don't recall him being as old as this gentleman, end quote. Be that as it may, Dr. May signed the official documents stating that the man killed by Union soldiers that day was indeed John Wilkes Booth, but adding this before signing his name, quote, I recall Booth as having black hair, and this man has sandy hair. I recall that Booth had a rather clear complexion, and this man is freckled. But this is certainly Booth, end quote. Decades later, in 1906, Dr. May walked his doubt back, essentially saying, yeah, that dude was definitely Booth. It's cool. Whatever. After Dr. May examined and ID'd the body, however, uncertainly, it was moved to a naval ship for official autopsy. I don't know why. Maybe the thought was being on a ship would afford them more privacy. Maybe the only available coroner was on the ship. Maybe they wanted a cruise vacation but needed it to be a tax write-off. Anyway... An odd and definitely not suspicious thing at all about the autopsy is that hardly any pictures were taken. According to Orlowek. Now, had the government really believed that that body was Booth's, they would have taken pictures of it. They would have had many, many hundreds of people to identify it. But the War Department didn't do that. The government knew that that man was not Booth. Historian Jan Herman told our friends at Unsolved Mysteries that there was only one photo taken at the autopsy and that it was handed over directly to Secretary of War Stanton. Herman also claimed that not only was Booth's family not allowed to see the body, but that several Lincoln assassination co-conspirators were on the ship on which the autopsy took place, and none of them were brought in to ID the body. The claim that Booth's family didn't get to see the body is a little wobbly, to be fair. I couldn't figure out definitively one way or the other if they were not allowed to see the body. If these allegations are true, I have to say, it's not a great look for Stanton and the U.S. government. And here's the thing. It's not just talking head historians on TV who think the official story of John Wilkes Booth's capture and murder by Union soldiers is fishy. In 1866, just one year after the assassination, Senators Charles Sumner and Garrett Davis both came forward with their doubts that the man killed at the Garrett farm was, in fact, John Wilkes Booth. There just wasn't enough evidence, they argued. And in the early 1900s, John Schumacher, a military lawyer, went so far as to say the evidence that the body they buried was Booth wouldn't hold up in a court of law. So far, all of this is a lot of unsubstantiated rumor. 
It's one thing to claim that the dead body of a man in Enid, Oklahoma was actually John Wilkes Booth because he supposedly made a deathbed confession and bore a resemblance to Booth. It's a whole nother can of worms, though, to see apparently authentic court documents with John Wilkes Booth's signature signed years after his alleged death. Dr. Arthur Chitty found such a document. Apparently, in 1872, seven years after Lincoln's assassination, a woman named Louisa Payne married one John St. Helen back in Tennessee. Family legend goes that after they were married, St. Helen confessed to Louisa that he killed Lincoln and was indeed John Wilkes Booth. And Louisa was like, what? You signed our marriage certificate with a fake name? That's right. Louisa's complaint was not that her husband had literally committed treason and murder. It was that he used a fake name on their marriage certificate. Louisa made him go back to the courthouse and redo the marriage under his real name, which apparently he did, and he signed a new document with the name John W. Booth. Dr. Chitty found the document in the Tennessee court records, and there it is in black and white. Which leads me to this important question. What the fuck was going on in Tennessee in 1872 that no one seemed to notice the president's assassin just waltzing around marrying women and signing court documents? Hello? Lord knows documents can be forged, and if you ask me, the middle initial in the signature looks like an M, not a W, but I'm no old-timey handwriting expert. But, as far as I can tell, this is the most concrete evidence that John Wilkes Booth may have been alive at least seven years after he was allegedly shot and killed. It's also the most compelling, attaching him to a new life he might have started. Booth was a self-important fanatic and an actor, for God's sake. Did we think he'd not relish in evading the U.S. government and death by starting fresh? Of course, there is concrete evidence that could help put this whole thing to rest once and for all. The body that's buried in Maryland under the headstone that reads, John Wilkes Booth died 1865. After the Unsolved Mysteries episode aired, the Smithsonian reached out to Orloek and Chitty to offer their backing in having the body exhumed. The men got Booth's remaining family on board and even got Baltimore State's attorney to support them. But the president of the cemetery, did you know that was a job? President of a cemetery? I wish I had time to go into how existentially insane that is. Was like, not today, Bob, and denied their request. His argument was basically that their evidence was too flimsy and, I don't know, he had a pedicure to get to. So Orloek sued the cemetery in 1995 and lost, again on the grounds that there wasn't enough evidence. And besides, the judge said, the conditions in the ground over the previous century and a half probably would have made examination of the body pretty much impossible anyway. Which, I mean, sure, but can't you at least try? But Orloek wasn't going to give up that easily, and in 2013, he petitioned the National Museum of Health and Medicine to have experts examine three vertebrae from John Wilkes Booth's neck that are apparently kept at the museum. But again, he was denied on the grounds that examining the specimens might damage them and that, quote, the need to preserve these bones for future generations compels us to decline the destructive test, end quote. 
Um, what exactly are you preserving them for, if not for further examination? Just for display? Like, just to be like, look, kids, here's the spine of the guy who killed Lincoln. We think. Probably. Maybe. I mean, okay. Forensic technology is advancing all the time, and it may be we'll figure out other ways of putting an end to this debate once and for all. A 2019 episode of Mummies Unwrapped on the History Channel used facial recognition software to compare pictures of Booth, St. Helen, and the embalmed corpse of David E. George. The data suggested that all three pictures were of the same man. Far be it from me to doubt fancy, expensive software, but to be fair, all white dudes looked alike back then. Take a vaguely European face, throw on a mustache and a popular hairdo, and there you have most of the roster of dudes, my friends. And sure, you can't necessarily rely on the data based on photos that are more than a century old, especially not when it's being done for the purposes of a TV show, but maybe it's enough to convince the powers that be to allow for the body to be exhumed and examined at all. Believe it or not, there's a whole different theory that involves Booth's escape to India, where he lived under the assumed name of John B. Wilkes, complete with a will that names John Wilkes Booth's heirs. But the will wasn't even signed, and Lord knows anyone could have forged it. And do I really need to spend time debunking a theory that the world's most notorious presidential assassin changed his name from John Wilkes Booth to John B. Wilkes? No, that answer is no. So, class, what have we learned today? Did John Wilkes Booth die at the hands of Union soldiers on April 26, 1865? TBH? I don't know. Which isn't unusual for me. I don't know much. But I will say that the evidence that maybe he didn't is intriguing. I don't think this conspiracy will ever get put to bed. Imagine what would happen even all these decades later if the government was like, oh yeah, we definitely got the wrong man and knew it all along. Booth was not alone in his severe mistrust in and dislike for the government. It's a grand tradition that not only persists to this day, but seems to be gaining steam if the preponderance of don't tread on me bumper stickers and a failed coup on the Capitol are any indication. One thing to take away from all this is that history is not carved in stone. There are things in the history books that we all take for granted, but which, upon further investigation, seem less than certain. Is this just fake news of the past? What will the history books of the future say about today? I don't know, but I'm sure this podcast will figure prominently. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan, is it possible for a whole town to be cursed? What could have caused 10 years of terror in a small town in upstate New York? We'll take a visit to the Village of the Damned. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. 
Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsessed Network and is produced by Becca Gregorio and Natalie Grillo. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, edited by Eve Kerrigan, and researched by Jess McKillop. Our audio editor and mixer is Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ryan Garcia, Luther Creek, and Lauren Hooper. Our social channels are run and managed by Amy Sapp. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. If you like our show, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. 